Ecclesiastes, think about bookends. It says something on the front end, and then says something very similar on the back end, so that you get the theme. You're going to find that in verse 2, is the theme. And then everything in between those two bookends tells you just what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. Now, if you have, everybody have an outline? Okay, we'll try to go through this outline tonight, but uh, you can look at it. Uh, on the front end, and you see that phrase, everything is meaningless. Ecclesiastes is not the book that you recommend to people that are feeling down. You got a friend that calls you and says, look, I'm really, I'm, I'm sort of depressed. Can you recommend something from the Bible for me to read? Do not send them to Ecclesiastes. Especially if they don't have a gospel-centered view of it. Because without the light of the gospel shining on Ecclesiastes, it can feel really, really depressing. Because in this book, the writer finds out that everything really is meaningless. Ecclesiastes, uh, oddly, is probably, some of you, is your favorite book in the Old Testament. Anybody favorite book, Ecclesiastes? I, I see that hand back there, right? Kind of. He was afraid to say so publicly. Uh, when I came through seminary, um, when I got to New Orleans Seminary and got the Southwestern experience behind me, got to New Orleans, got married, you know, when you get married, uh, you sort of dial in. I wasn't doing so well before I got married, got married, and started to act like an adult. And at school, I decided I loved it and started really loving uh, Hebrew, the language Hebrew. In fact, I started taking all of my electives in um, Hebrew exegesis. I had one main professor. His name was Rick Byerjohn. A few years ago, he died of cancer. I ended up preaching his funeral. A great man. And he actually is the one who taught me how to preach. My preaching professor wasn't any good. Uh, but he was good uh, in that he would say, here's the Bible. It shows what to do with it and then how to apply it. And his dissertation was on the book of Ecclesiastes. He loved the book of Ecclesiastes. And so I always wondered why, what is it about this book? And I think, maybe, maybe Mike talked about this last week, I think you can um, feel how relevant it is for us in a world especially drowning in materialism. And how things can feel like they mean something when in fact they don't. And that really is what the preacher says. So let me take you to, uh, I know that Mike covered some of the verses. Let me just, let's go to verse 1 uh, just for continuity. You guys mind if I read? I'd like to read um, the first passage. Just read it and then we'll come back through it. The words of the preacher, the son of David, King in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does a man gain by the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. Wind blows to the south goes around to the north, and around and around goes the wind, 
and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing. The ear is not filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It's already been done in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things. You might translate that former people. Nor will there, there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. And then verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun. And behold, it's all vanity. It's striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom, to know madness, to know folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. That's not uplifting, is it? I mean, you read it on face value, you think, that's a... Uh, if I'm having my quiet time and I start out with Ecclesiastes, that doesn't really make me want to go and work hard. Because I'm thinking, what does it matter? Which is not a bad thing to think. First point is everything. Everything is meaningless because life is not what it seems. Mac Brunson, you guys know the name Mac Brunson? He was the pastor at First Baptist Church Jacksonville for a long time. Before that, he was the pastor at First Baptist Church Dallas, Texas. <clears throat> 30 years ago in the Southern Baptist Convention, the flagship church was First Baptist Church Dallas. It's not anymore, but it was at one time. And Mac Brunson, uh, he, through a series of events, became the pastor there after W.A. Criswell. And one of the things he said when he got to that church after being there a while was, Oz ain't all it's cracked up to be. Pursue something, you pursue it, you pursue it, you get it, and you find out it's not, not what you think. Let's look at verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. This is a, this is a depressing book if you don't have the light of Christ shining on it. But right there in verse 1, there's a crack that starts to form. And you see some rays of sunlight coming through. You see that phrase, son of David? You see that phrase, king in Jerusalem? It is a reminder that there's something good here. Something good. You hear a whisper of it, but then we get to verse 2. <clears throat> if you're reading in Hebrew, it would go like this. 
Havil Havilim. Havil Havilim. It rolls around and around. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Let's look at those words that I have in front of you there. The words vapor and breath and pointless and parody. The word vapor, that's kind of what this word vanity, a lot of translators have a hard time translating this word vanity uh, because it's hard, to, it's hard to pin it down. What exactly does it mean? A puff of wind. It's, it means um, nothing you can get your hands on. It looks like it's something of substance, but then you go and touch it and it's really not. When I did my Hebrew exegesis of the book of, of Ecclesiastes and I had to write a paper uh, on uh, this chapter and uh, define the word and I go, go through and find the Hebrew lexicon and all of these words and I finally came up with the word uh, vacuous. Do you know the word vacuous? Yeah, like a vacuum, but it's empty. It's just empty. So that it, it's empty and yet sucking life out. It, it's, it's pulling and yet there's nothing to show. It's like, um, we're in North Carolina, it's like, a, it's like a freshly lit cigarette. Not, I'm, not that I'm a smoker, but if I am close by and somebody lights a cigarette and you, there's, it has a distinct smell and then it passes on by and gone. Vanity of vanities. And, and that's, what, that's what this book is about. It's about showing us that, that almost everything you pursue is going to be a wisp, a vapor. In fact, when you keep looking at it, do um, you see how it's written in verse 2? Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. It's, he's saying that the whole of it, the whole thing is. That it, the, the sum total, here's something that's going to lift you up. The sum total of your life is nothing. It's vanity. <laughs> I mean, this is not, the, this is not uh, the prosperity gospel right here. This is a reminder that um, it is an illusion. In fact, the way you said it there, um, you have that word breath. It's like an, it's like an exhale. Uh, if you've got glasses, I breathe on my glasses to clean them. I breathe on, fog them up for just a second. It's gone. All right, just a... Just a breath. In fact, you'll notice what he does. You see the word pointless? He, he doubles and redoubles this terrible word. He takes this word and just keeps saying it over and over again. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. I mean, why is he doing this? On the very front end, what the preacher's doing, and that's what um, Koheleth, the name of it is, the preacher, what he's doing is, is by rhetoric letting us know on the very front end, here's the theme of the book and the experience of life. In fact, you see the word parody down there? It said parody for a reason. Um, when you hear vanity of vanities, you, how it's structured, does that make you think of anything else? You ever hear uh, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, there's another one. Go into the what? The Holy of Holies. There are some that think that uh, this is written in a way to parody the Holy of Holies. To be sort of a mocking to say. That, you know, the Holy of Holies, that's where you, you meet God. But really, when you're pursuing life, what you're ending up with is the vanity of vanities. So the first point you got, 
right off the bat in verses 1 and 2 is that, you know, everything is meaningless because life just isn't what it seems. And you have this utter emptiness in verse 2 that stands in contrast to utter holiness. And if we're not careful, even as God's people, what happens is we live in a world that values so many things that, <clears throat> that our life starts to look like everybody else's, except that we're nicer, hopefully. <laughs> All right, I mean, so we're going to wear the same clothes, going to drive the same cars, going to live in the same homes. We're going to have the same values when it comes to a job. We're going to make the same kind of money. And we just sort of get wound up in the middle class America without actually thinking about what does any of this amount to? And a good place to come back for zeroing in is right here, verse 2. Vanity of vanities. He wants us to take a close look. In fact, I'll bring it down to the second point um, in verse 3. He goes on and it doesn't get any better. Everything is meaningless because you never get ahead. Some of you are old enough that when I said that, you should have said, Amen. Amen. Happy birthday, Betty. Tomorrow's her birthday. She said 38, but I think she's dyslexic. <laughs> Everything. Because you never, do you, Betty? You never get ahead. So it's like you go to the gym and you get up on this contraption that has this pad. You stand on it and hit the button and it starts going and you walk and walk and walk and you go Nowhere. Let me, let me show it. Verse 3. Verse 3. What does a man gain? You might want to circle that word gain. It's a very important word. What does a man gain by all the toil, another very important word, at which he toils under the sun? I mean, verse 3 is an abyss of pessimism. <laughs> I mean, genuinely, you read it like, what? What use is it? You see that word gain? It's the word profit. I, I wrote it down on your outline. The word profit, it's, um, it's, you, it's, it's what you get paid for what you do. That word, by the way, is not found anywhere else in the entire Old Testament. So if Solomon or whoever wrote this, I mean, he went in some obscure word and brought it here. I don't think he's like what Paul does. Paul makes up words sometimes. But, but the writer here brings this word we don't find anywhere else. It's an idea that Jesus, anybody remember the thing that Jesus said that sounds like this? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, loses his soul? It's, it's strange how you hear these whispers here in this otherwise depressing. I mean, I, okay, so we're in September, it's still very hot, my air condition not working well not working real well I just felt like I needed a little sympathy from you people yeah no no it just can't keep up so it gets hot and it's so hot right now it's 90 something degrees and uh, so it goes way up and in the evenings it's we can finally get it back down and we got a repairman's coming out we got the part it's gonna fix it uh, it'd be expensive but it seems like I, you know just when you think you've got a little bit tucked away something happens Right? There's a little phrase there, uh, right here in this passage. When you look at it, um, in verse 3, 
What does a man gain by all the toil? See that word toil? It could be anguish. It's the idea of work that you can't stand and yet you've got to do it to make the money to pay for the bills. And you do that and you spend your whole life at a job that you hate and you get to the end, retire, and the mutual fund has, has collapsed 2008. It, everything tanks. And what do you have to show? And this answer is nothing. Right? And notice that little phrase. Don't skip. Don't, right there in verse 3, that little phrase now shines light on it. What does a man gain by all the toil of which he toils? You see that phrase? Under the sun. The writer is writing from the perspective of a godless society. He's saying there's something on the other side of the sun. But we get caught here. You never, you never get ahead. Under the sun. He's talking about life as it is carried out in this world. We'll have a funeral here tomorrow. John will preach another one Friday. Uh, John preaches a whole lot of funerals. Uh, it's like he is seven or eight people. Um, does great pastoral care. And it's just a reminder. So many people right on the edge. And we get to the time of the funeral, and so many times he, he has to make accommodations and do things that really have nothing to do with Christianity, trying to put some sort of meaning on a funeral. And the truth is, if you don't have Christ, then you, what you say at a funeral doesn't amount to anything. And the perspective here in, in verse 3 is, you get there, you've worked all this time, and if all your perspective is under the sun, then you never get ahead. In fact, um, <clears throat> you see the word man, it's going to come up again in a little bit, uh, but right there in verse 3, what does a man, it's, it's, it's Adam, it, it has brought us back to creation. God's creation of man and woman. And God created us for good. We were created to work. That work was, was wholesome and right before the fall. And now after the fall, under the sun, it's difficult. And it's all meaningless without Jesus. Everything is meaningless because you never get ahead. Let me give you a, another something. How many of these things do we have? Okay, we can slow down a little bit. <clears throat> Here's a third point. Everything is meaningless because all our activity is pointless. <laughs> I didn't think these points through very good. I should have made them a little more. But it is, right? I mean, here you are in the abyss of pessimism in verse 3. You have an example of a worldview in verse 3. There's a certain worldview there. It's a bad worldview. It's a worldview that says, regardless of what you do, you can't really know satisfaction. They have examples by creation. If you look at verses 4, 5, 6, and 7, look at the examples of creation. 
A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Do you see the brevity of life, right? Uh, I like to go and look at cemeteries. No, I mean, nothing creepy. I like the sunshine. I don't want to be in there when it's dark. But it's interesting, right? I, I, I like the... And sometimes I think that Connie, she uh, evidently loves being there as well. Um, which is actually not true. She does come with me. We've gone and looked at cemeteries in Salisbury. There was a, a national cemetery there during the Civil War. It's a, it's a, and it's still a federal cemetery there. Um, we go to Apalachicola, Florida, close to our vacation. Uh, there's an old town and cemetery there. And one, two, three hundred, maybe, years ago. That's about as far as it goes. You can go um, out to Philadelphia Presbyterian Church, one of the earliest churches here in North Carolina, along with the other five sisters. The Presbyterians came out of the mountains. The Scots and the Irish came down, settled in Piedmont, and uh, had the Chagall uh, Creek Presbyterian Church, and there were four others, and, and Philadelphia followed behind. And you can go, and there are two, three cemeteries in Mint Hill. One is behind Queens Grant. Uh, there you'll also find one of the largest slave cemeteries in the state, it's just sitting there. It's good to go and walk and think about some, just the, the shortness of life. My name is Clint Presley. My son's name is Clint Presley. My dad's name is Clint Presley. He'll be 77 next week. His dad was Clint Presley, but it was Clinton Century Presley because he was born January the 1st, 1901, and his parents named him Clinton Century, turn of the century. Right. Dad's Clinton Century and I got Lee for some reason. <laughs> but one generation back, his dad, Clinton, the first Clinton Century, his dad was John Frank Presley. He died when he was 29 and his wife was pregnant. Right? I got a picture of him. And then after that, it starts to fade. There's a good chance that uh, your... If you've got them, your children, grandchildren, maybe your great-grandchildren won't actually even know your name. If they do know it, they'll look, get it from Manchester.com. That's how they'll know it. And it's just a good reminder here in the text. It's a reminder that a generation goes and a generation comes, the brevity of life. So if that's the case, and we're living this life under the sun, and the things we pursue under the sun on this part of the world... This part of existence, if the things don't really add up to anything, what is it that I should be thinking about? In fact, the sun is pictured as a marathoner in verse 5. Uh, do you see the verse 5? The sun rises, the sun goes down, and it hastens. That word hastens. It's like it, it's worn out. Near the end of the marathon, and is breathing heavy, feet hurts, and is going to have to do it again tomorrow. Like a worn out, that's kind of what the word hastens means. And then see in verse 6, the circles, this, this, verse 6 and 7 is never satisfied. So, so, the, so the, the preacher now has lifted up creation and said, okay, you can look at creation and see. Verse 7, all the streams run to the sea. So we've got the continental divide, eastern continental divide. I mentioned it um, sometime in a sermon, I think. 
and, and just where, where the water flows either to the Atlantic or to the Gulf. And that's where they end up. And verse 7 has this idea of there's actually never real satisfaction. It's because of our activity. It ends up being pointless. We, we can pursue so many things. If you think about how many hours you might sleep, uh, as opposed to, to what you actually do, especially if you're, you're working, if you got, and you've got children, small children, you're getting them ready up, up early, getting them gone, going to school. If they get up and are, are, are on sports teams, you're running around like a taxi. And the, the question that the preacher is just kind of putting in our face is, what is it, I mean, what is it, what does it add to? So if, if creation's not enough, come down with verse 8, 9, 10, and 11, and the human experience. Look at the human experience in verses 8, 9, 10, and 11. All things are full of weariness. It's the idea that creation is being stretched to exhaustion, and yet man cannot be satisfied. The eye, here, look here, the, the eye is not satisfied with seeing. Think about the information you can get right now. If you're bored with what I'm saying, you can get on your phone and go anywhere in the world and get any information you want. It's, it's, it's at our fingertips at an instant. And if you're, yeah, it's at our fingertips at, a, at, a, at an instant. Eye is not satisfied with seeing, the ear with hearing. What has been is what will be. So if you think you're original, you're not. Right? There's no original preaching. Um, of course, you should never plagiarize, and you have no evidence that I ever did that. Remember from Sunday, I threw all that stuff away. There was a guy in Texas that was plagiarizing me. Did I tell you all about that? Yeah, he was preaching every single. So he would preach every single word of my sermons. Christina's the one that discovered it. Uh, she said, hey, you know, check that out. So I got my, my, I got my manuscript because my sermons are written out, word for word. And he was preaching every single word. He even was doing like the inflection. <laughs> right. Or like using my sense of humor. I mean, just all of that stuff. It was really, really weird. Um, yeah, it was a stalker, right? So I called him on the phone. And uh, had a conversation with him. Anyhow, we got, we got it worked out. <laughs> We got it worked out. Yeah, we got it worked out. Yeah. But the truth is, there's nothing new under the sun. I don't know that I've ever had an original thought. Even when I think I've had an original thought, I see somebody else has already thought that. Right? I mean, that's what, that's what the text here is telling us, that our, our activity. So what the preacher is doing is, is, is driving us to the point. Remember that the Old Testament law... It, one of its uses is to show us our own sin. Remember that? that so we're not, we're not under law, we're under grace, but it doesn't mean that the law is not good. The law is good in that it points us to the fact that we are sinners, that we need grace. Well, this is not law. This is wisdom literature that is, that is taking us beyond just sin. It's taking us to some things that actually might be neutral, good things, and showing us it's not just sin that keeps you from seeing your need. It's, it's, sometimes it's the good things we pursue. Having a nice lawn is a good thing. One day I hope to have a nice lawn. 
But my, I got trees, it sucked all the water out of the grass, it's like a desert in my yard. I'd like to have a nice lawn, but that's not something that's going to be worthwhile. It's a neutral thing, it's not a sinful thing. Right, and so what, it, what the preacher here is saying, it's not just sins that make us see our need for grace, it's the good things that actually make us see our need. That it doesn't add up to anything. And, and if you keep going um, down in verse 12 through about verse 18, uh, you find out that everything is meaningless because nothing satisfies. I mean, you get to verse, verse 13. I, I talked a little bit about verse 12. It's a reiteration of who the author is. Verse 13, let me show you something in verse 13. Uh, when the word seek and Adam's unhappy business and there you're going to find three conclusions. Let me read it and just point them out to you. I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It's the same thing as under sun, under the sun, under heaven. Here comes the conclusion. So here's what he said. All right, I've done all that seeking. Um, I'm at the end of my life. I've tried a whole bunch. We're going to find out later. I've tried uh, all the liquor you could drink, all the women you could handle. I've done all of it. That's what Ecclesiastes says. And he's, now he's taking a step back and he said, okay, let me tell you what I've learned. Here's a couple of conclusions. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. That's one conclusion. Here's another conclusion. <clears throat> I've seen everything that's done under the sun and behold... It's all vanity. Striving after the wind. That's frust frustrating. That's the second conclusion. Here's a third conclusion he comes up with. Verse 15 is the third conclusion. We live in an unfixable world. What is crooked cannot be made straight. The, the twisted up parts of our thinking... I came through and got married and went through, a, I went through a terrible, abusive marriage and it's damaged me and it's twisted and it's, I can't make it straight. What's, what's lacking? So things don't work out like, they, like, like I think they should. I, I want, I want to, 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 to meet someone, to be married, to have a child, but I can't have children. And they're, so there are these gaps in our in our thoughts, in our lives. That's what, I mean, that's what verse 15 is saying. Does it ever work out like we want it to work out? It just doesn't. And, and if you're not careful, that becomes what you dwell on. And the preacher's saying, hey, whether you got it made or you didn't have it made, whether you're pursuing really good things or the really damaging things happening to you, None of that satisfies. Man is seeking in verse 13. Mankind has an unhappy business when he's doing it under the sun without recognizing there's something better. We live in an, un, un, in an unfixable world, verse 15. You think, well, maybe, maybe if we just learn. It's a good thing to go to school. It's a good thing to learn. Well, if you get to verse 18, you find out that ignorance is bliss. It's true. Ignorance is actually the, 
that the more, amen, I told you, happy birthday, right? <laughs> right, the, you, the more you know, the more you worry. At the end of, uh, the end of, of Ecclesiastes, this is a good, a good book for college students. I loved um, when I found this at the end of Ecclesiastes that says uh, that the, make, the making of books, there is no end, and much study is weariness of the flesh. That's the Bible right there, and I believe it to be true. Right? The more you know, the more you worry. So you, all you smart people, people, you're not sleeping at night. I mean, that's what the Bible says here in verse 18. Much wisdom is much vexation. That is a terrible thing. But that's not the end of the story. That's the beginning. That should make us take this book now. Let me flip it all the way over to the end. I told you about the bookends. You've seen one bookend. Uh, it took a long time to talk about it. Now I'm just going to show you very quickly the end of the matter. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. I've got it written at verse 8 through 14. And that first point, I think it says verse 4, but I, I, I think we want to be at verse 11. Let me just take you down there to verse 9. Chapter 12, verse 9. Besides being wise, <clears throat> besides being wise, the preacher also, also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goats. You see that A up under number five? Everything is meaningless in order to drive us to Christ. You see, the hard providence, do you know what a hard providence is? If I, if I use the, the phrase hard providence as opposed to a smiling providence, a hard providence is, you, and also, by the way, when you talk about providence, you're always looking in the rearview mirror, and you're, not, you're looking back and seeing God got me through this, okay? So a hard providence is you went through a really hard time, but God and His providence walked you through it, and you made it. A hard providence. A smiling providence is, that was a really nice time. Things went well. It's God's providence still. It just happened to be a, a, a happy or a smiling providence. Hard providence. But a hard providence, according to verse 11, that's still God doing it. You see verse 11? The words of the wise are like goads. Anybody know what a goad is? Yeah, like a... Yeah, look, I had to goad them into it. That's a cattle prod. I mean, this day and time, it would be a cattle prod with an electric tip. Yeah. And that's the idea that here, the hard providence is there for what? It is the shepherd that is getting us to go in a direction that we didn't want to go. It's verse 11. The words of the wise, they're like goads. And like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one Shepherd, what is that word shepherd doing there? This felt like a, such a depressing book, and yet you get here to verse 11, and there's the word shepherd three times in the Old Testament. Three times. There are only three other places in the entire Old Testament that speak of one shepherd. And every single one of them is messianic. 
Every single one. Only three other places. Every single one. I'll give you a couple of them. Oh, I got the verse. See the reference there? Ezekiel 34, verse 23 and 24. Let me read you what that says. This is the prophecy. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, he shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be, uh, will be their God, and my servant David shall uh, be a prince among them. I am the Lord, and I have spoken one shepherd. What, is the hard, what are the hard things there for? To drive us to the one shepherd. What is Ecclesiastes for? Driving us to the one shepherd. Also in, in the other places in Ezekiel as well, it's Ezekiel 37. One of my favorite passages, Ezekiel 37, is the Valley of the Dry Bones. It's a great, it's a great, uh, it's a great passage. Love to preach that passage. I just don't want to have to preach through, uh, through Ezekiel to do it. Ezekiel 37, verse 24, says it like this. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have, there it is again, one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. The reason we don't find satisfaction in things, even good things, is that God has given us those things, even the emptiness of good things, to drive us, like a goad, to drive us to Christ. So that we understand that it's not the things under the sun that mean so much. It is what's beyond the sun. To put a finer point on it, um, you can flip, if you'd like, to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. I'll just read verses 11 through 16. When, when we go through the book of Ecclesiastes in the next 11 or 12 weeks or so, uh, our approach is unapologetically to see it and to read it in light of it pointing us to Christ. That, that book is here. The Old Testament is here to point us to Jesus. And so we've, we've seen the one shepherd in, at the end of Ecclesiastes now let's jump to the words of that one shepherd. John chapter 10. I'll, I'll back up and start with verse 10. The thief comes only to kill and to, to steal, kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd... Who does not own the sheep, he sees the wolf coming, and he leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them, scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know, know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep. This is us. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice so that there will be one flock and one shepherd. 
Isn't that good news? That we're reminded that all of these things that are actually meaningless in our life, whether they're bad or neutral, they drive us to Christ. And the writer of Ecclesiastes gives us the end of the matter. This is good. Verse 13 and 14. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God. Keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether it's good or evil. And when that happens, standing before God in judgment, we call on the righteousness of the one shepherd, Jesus. Ecclesiastes reminds us everything is meaningless in order to drive us to Christ. So tomorrow when you're bored at work, bored with doing something, or you hate your job, or you're in a conversation that your eyes are rolling back, that's there as a goad. You didn't know it, but that hard providence is there to point you toward Jesus. Do you join me as we pray? We'll close the night. I would appreciate you guys praying for me in the morning. Uh, tomorrow morning, I'll preach uh, at chapel to our uh, junior high or middle school and high school students. And I'm going to use Hebrews chapter 10. Pray that the Lord will use that, that he'll be honored, that students will be awakened to believe and to live their lives for Jesus. 930 is chapel, so I appreciate you uh, praying for me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you use it all, every bit of it. And we ask you to forgive us for the times we've put too much value on things that actually don't matter and forgotten to see them as pressing us to you. So I pray that I might be more mindful tomorrow. Lord, help me to be more mindful of each thing that happens, good, bad, or neutral, that I might see your hand and give thanks for your grace. Father, I pray you wake us up tomorrow with a good alarm and time to spend time with you. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.